And you're listening to Shift Happens on Kootenai Co-op Radio. My name is Jeff Pilsner. I'm one of your hosts. I'm Anna Bockstrom. And I'm Tash. And we have with us today, our special guest is Norman Sheaf. And if you don't know of Norman, you will definitely know of his photos. He has taken some of the most famous photographs in our pop culture. And we have Norman here today with us to share and talk about the journey. Welcome, Norman. Absolutely. And I didn't know I was going to have three of you. How fun. I, oh, so much fun. I, this three is... of us make one brain, by the way. <laughs> yeah, we'll... Yes, well, Tesh needs help, of course. <laughs> body, so. See, I'm not the only one that says that. <laughs> oh, God, it comes from every quarter. <laughs> yes, well, I'm happy that you two are meeting it uh, here on the radio. These are s- special friends of mine here, Norman. And uh, Jeff has come through open heart surgery uh, about a month ago. And three months ago, three oh, God, time <laughs> travels. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Uh, but lots takes, of shifts. It and takes time to shift, uh, but it's. Uh, I don't know if you know. I was an ex-medical doctor, so um, I look at the world through a, a a kind of a multiplicity of lenses. And when we talk about open heart surgery i do it psychically and emotionally on a daily basis (laughs) yes i i got that normie and it's so potent it's a lot like yoga even though you're not a a yoga full-blown yoga practitioner in the name of spirit it's the same process tuning in and letting go and finding that magic in the moment and the miracles um, well, actually, um, what is going on, which is rather interesting and spontaneous, I've, d- I've started doing yoga every morning, and um, it's um, opening up energetically and breath and the relaxing into the pose. In, and I, just to jump back, many, many moons ago, I started a yoga school at my studio and that yoga school eventually became one of the most successful um, uh, yoga um, uh, complexes in, in the States. <clears throat> I didn't teach, but we did it before every session. And then, of course, we all got stoned and high afterwards. <laughs> so, um, <clears throat> but uh, what uh, I am doing now, just to sort of, you know, bring it into sort of experience in the moment is um, I'm having the most amazing experience because as I'm doing it in this way, it's telling me stuff, it's teaching me stuff. And one of the things that I got because um, uh, I have actually shot a book on or a couple of books on uh, yoga and one of them was contact yoga that had Tesh and Tara in, in it and at that time, I thought uh, poses were something that you struggled to do and you stressed to hold a pose. And when I watched Tesh, I realized that, no, you relax into it. <laughs> you, allow, you allow yourself to surrender into it. So out of that inspiration, Tesh, my daily practice, which is not a long, it's just a, like a half hour every morning, is just astounding in terms of, um, you know, what it's actually doing for me and feeling healthier and, and just more integrated. Oh, love it. Love you. It's so beautiful, and I'm so happy. Uh, the way we sh- you, that you filmed us and interviewed, I mean, I got to witness your magic equally, and I feel like when that s- 
happens, the artists can just open up and receive each other's gifts uh, intuitively. And you have worked with so many artists. It's kind of like the way that you work uh, by creating an environment of relax, just like yoga, relaxation and uh, just letting go and being open and watching that uh, the beautiful stuff begins to shine. And you've yeah. taken on so many artists. You've probably got so all that inside of you now as you move on and teach it. Um, well, it is uh, every um, uh, interaction with anybody, of course, is the transmission. <laughs> and um, what's interesting um, as a practice mm. is that what I discovered, and I, you know, I'll just give you a f- tiny little thumbnail, then I'm happy to talk about working with some of these amazing uh, geniuses, innovators, creators that, you know, I've actually had the the joy of having privately in a room for three to four hours. And in fact, um, I sometimes tell people that my whole career as a photographer and a filmmaker uh, was a career in drag because what it did, it allowed me to bring people that I wanted to talk to and engage for two, three, four hours on a peer-to-peer basis in a room so basically what I say is that I'm an explorer of the inner dynamics of the creative process and then photography and filmmaking are my vehicle for uh, communication. But the actual uh, passion for me is how can we access our innate human capacity to create? And, and we'll get into that a little further. But the key to it is that what I discovered very quickly after I'm relinquished my career in South Africa, and that was as an emergency medical doctor working in Soweto uh, during the apartheid time, and uh, it was kind of necessary to relocate. Uh, that's, um, uh, that's an icon with a lot of information <laughs> in that word. But what happened is when I came here, I thought that, you know, and I began in a whole new career. I didn't know much about it, but discovered the world of rock photography in New York. Were you already a photographer in Africa? Uh, no, I, w- I always uh, had the capacity to draw at the age of six, five, six, seven. I was drawing anatomically correct figures in three-dimensional rooms, and I'm looking at other kids who are drawing eggs with you know, like stick figures, and I'm yes. thinking there's something, there's something wrong. That would have been me. me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but but I thought it was wrong with me. But but the whole point is that I had a kind of a visual capacity from early on, and um, I, during the time that I decided to move into medicine, I always had that duality of the science and the art, and I always had studios, and I painted and sculpted, and in fact. During my medical career, I ran a, an art class at night for life drawing. And um, hmm. there was always this uh, duality, which way do I really want to go and what is my voice and, and, and what is the truth for me in terms of an expression in the world. And um, uh, if you don't mind, like we can, we uh, I, I feel like a neural network. There's a there's something that sparks an idea, and we end up uh, in different parts of the brain. Yes, uh, uh, you're you're cool with a non-linear approach here, right? We love it. We Story love of it. our lives. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. 
Okay, so so what happened as I was in this um, period of time when I was working in Soweto in um, the emergency component of the hospital was I, I'd gone into medicine. My father was a doctor. I really honored what he was doing, and I believed that I was going into uh, what I thought was a healing art, and I find myself in, this, in an environment where people are coming in, in the most horrific state, um, you know, uh, diseases that are just horrendous because they traveled for uh, days and days and days trying to get to a hospital or uh, police brutality, um, you know, against prisoners or assaults. And what I found myself doing was fixing broken down machines. And it was uh, incredibly... Um, challenging and uh, in one way i wouldn't call it fulfilling but the the sense of i'm this is essential work that i'm doing and i was very good at it but i felt like i was fixing not rather healing, than the healing arts rather than the healing and i didn't know um that there was a separation between the two that was before that uh, was a thought in my mind but it felt that there was something dissatisfying behind the satisfaction of what I was doing and ultimately began to understand that healing was about change and what I was doing was not about change. You fix the machine uh, because that's how people were related to and they'd come back three weeks later in a terrible state again and there was uh, that feeling of despair that no matter how hard I try, I can't make any change. And um, what actually happened was I woke up uh, and I, I, I ran uh, one of the people running that emergency uh, unit for about three years. But I remember waking up one morning and it was just very clear. It was like, I'm out of here. And what I did was I, um, I resigned my position at the hospital and within a very short time bought a one-way ticket to New York as a visitor and uh, packed one bag and I put a camera in it and a bunch of my artwork and drawings and um, some pointy black shoes. I thought I needed them in New York. <laughs> <laughs> Discovered uh, I don't need them <laughs> when I got there, but um, I, just, uh, I just let it all go. And um, it was also, it come to a place where it was very dangerous. Um, for me at the time, and most of my friends um, who were activists uh, were either in solitary confinement uh, or else had gotten out of the country. And I, uh, I just felt like this is not the kind of life I want to live. So there were, there were multiple motivations of, of why I left. One was uh, I, in a, a, the, that fundamental drive for freedom and it was a duality of freedom from, I, I needed to have a, a more sophisticated, you know, humanistic culture. Uh, and uh, the, the kind of emotional and cultural uh, oppression, but there was also the political oppression. But there is also the, the freedom too. There was that part, that passionate desire in me to express myself uh, in many, many possible ways. So it, it wasn't like, well, I'm going to go to New York and become a photographer. I didn't even know there was such a thing as the music business, actually, when I left. 
Um, but the whole point was that duality and that drive of freedom. Um, and you do what you have to do. It's a really an amazing thing. There's a certain stage of um, when the, that kind of epiphany comes. Uh, there's, of course, terror and fear about, and dread actually is a better word for it, when life as you know it changes completely. And I remember that moment of as that plane took off. And I looked, <clears throat> I looked down at the ground and I realized that I would never come back and that this was, you know, a complete separation in a sense from everything that I had known and been. And um, there was this combination of absolute elation and a very, very, you know, deep sadness of separation. Yes. And at the same time, I had always felt separated in South Africa because of the, you know, I, I couldn't find out who I was in that environment because things that I saw just felt so um, soul-destroying uh, that what I didn't know at the time, that I had an enormous amount of rage in me. And, um, you know, that is, a, is an issue that I'll talk about a little bit later, but just to say one thing about it was, you know, rage is not the violence that it sometimes erupts into rage is in fact that sense of powerlessness and despair that no matter what I'm, I'm doing, I cannot bring Never about any change. Yes, no more connection. But let me shut up for a minute because I'm sure you guys... Oh, I, it's <laughs> just going, it's just flowing beautifully. Actually, what I would like to do, when we did a little bit of research, um, I think I've got the song that kind of kicked it all off for you and you can tell me if I'm wrong or not. But if I play it, then you can, well, uh, slap me on the hand or give me a pat on the back. D is that okay. cool for you? Okay. Yes, absolutely. Okay, so I'm just going to hit play, and hopefully I've got it right. When we get to the end, you want to start off. And that was the band, the band, that was the name of the band, and the title was Stage Fright. And did I get it right? Um, well, you definitely got it right, but I was the last to know because there's oh. a rather interesting story about that whole event okay. uh, uh, when I photographed the band. So uh, uh, let me just jump a little ahead uh, to how this whole thing happened how I went from medical doctor to rock photographer, which I say with a slight <laughs> smiley face or emoji, you know, cool. an emoji, whatever. But mm -hmm. um, I uh, arrived in New York with one camera, one bag, uh, with the idea that I wanted to live the life of, of an artist or the artist, whatever that meant. And I'd sort of grown up as a kid and I'd been fascinated by the artists on the left bank in Paris. And I saw some books with girls with bare breasts, and I decided... <laughs> this is my profession. <laughs> <laughs> my profession. <laughs> I found it, so, finally. <laughs> so, so when I tell you there were multiple motivations, I want you to know there was a, a, a range from spirituality to hormonal. <laughs> yes, I got it. <laughs> Tesh and I definitely understand that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, um, but anyway, I arrive in New York, and I know that I want to be switching. Uh, I, I can't be an artist in the sense of a, you know, drawing and painting. It doesn't seem to be a way that I can survive. But the first thing I did was I started stopping people on the streets uh, who I found interesting. 
and I would say to them, look, you know, I'm a photographer and I'm building a, a portfolio and uh, I'd really love to photograph you and could I come to your house? And it was a way for me to come into a new culture and learn who people were and go uh, inside the culture, as it were. And I had also at that point discovered a bar downtown called Max's Kansas City. And it turned out that Max's was a kind of a nexus for the subculture and Andy Warhol's factory was across the road and uh, mm -hmm. I think uh, Blondie was a waitress there at one point mm -hmm. and it was just a very cool place to hang out and meet people and um, I ended up meeting people like Patti Smith and Robert Mablethorpe and Edgar Winter who's some guy sitting next to me saying hey I've got a band you want to if you a photographer you could take a picture uh, but I found myself building a portfolio of people, and it turned out that these were somehow or other, I had found my way into the beginnings of this incredible subculture that was now emerging. Um, of course, the painters were in Soho, but this was, you know, the, the Warhol and um, Robert Mablethorpe and that kind of grouping. And everyone lived at the Chelsea Hotel, and it was a, a kind of a... Uh, a fascinating place to be and um, you know I'm not making any money <clears throat> and it's like a year and a half and at that point um, I, I literally I don't have money for food and I don't sometimes have places to to stay and the whole romance of being the artist <laughs> is, is uh, kind of evaporated <laughs> into the very practical thing of how do I survive yeah and I, I didn't have money even for the subway. I was smart enough at one point to get myself a bicycle. And I learned uh, Manhattan on a bicycle, which is, I can tell you, is an amazing way mm -hmm. to discover that. And I lived in Manhattan. But um, this first year and a half was a nightmare, and it felt uh, uh, like an eternity. What age were and you then, Normie? I was 29. Mm-hmm. So um, what happened was one of my painter friends uh, in, in Soho said, you know, I know this very famous uh, graphic designer, uh, art director, and um, I should set up an appointment with you. And he set up this appointment for me to meet a man called Bob Cato, who was at that point uh, now freelance, but um, he'd, he'd run Columbia Records and he'd been consultant to Time Life Books and his own work as an artist was just mind-boggling. And I remember uh, going to his four-story brownstone on the east side next door to Avedon's house um, uh, um, somewhere in the 20s or so and, uh, you know, walking up this, these four flights of just astounding art. And it was, it was an amazing moment because as I looked at the quality and the beauty of the way he had decorated this place, uh, I went, oh, that's why I've come here, you know, to the States to meet people like this. Mm -hmm. And I remember going into Bob's uh, studio and um, he sat down with my portfolio and I'd never had this happen um, with a man. He page by page, first of all, he stopped everything he did and he gave me 100% focus and attention and he turned page by page of my portfolio and at one point I saw him look up and he had tears in his eyes. Wow. 
and mm. I have I had never seen that kind of emotion from a man where where I came from. If you showed any emotion or you showed fear, uh, that was shameful. Mm-hmm. And um, and so there was a kind of an epiphany in that moment that okay, maybe this is going to be all right. Mm-hmm. And um, <clears throat> what happened was that. Um, uh, uh, Bob ultimately uh, contacted me and said, "Look, I'm I'm shooting an album cover for this group called the Band, but I'd love you to do the liner notes, and um, you need to go to Woodstock uh, in a couple of weeks, and you'll shoot uh, the band at, at this place called the Big Pink." And so what happened? And I was living with two gay guys who'd given me a room at the back of their their apartment at that point, and they were photographers and they had a studio. And they loaned me a car and they loaned me a strobe, and I think I had enough money for about six rolls of film. And I drove for the first time in the states, which is on the opposite side of the road, and I got lost. Oh. And I nearly went down the, the, the Washington Bridge the wrong way. It was not a, a happy experience. <laughs> and I arrived at the Big Pink, and it was already dark, and three hours or four hours late. And this guy, who I didn't know who, what, who he was at that point, but Robbie Robertson and the band, they were furious. Yes. And um, so I remember, you know, coming into this big space, and Goth was practicing on a piano and everyone else was gone and I rearranged the furniture very quickly and I didn't have an assistant and and I got the band in and I was uh, setting up and I went oh my god my umbrella from my strobe is reflecting in in the window and I didn't have time you know that was a kind of no-no and I went oh you know what it actually looks okay graphically so I did the shoot which probably took about 35, 40 minutes because I ran out of film. And then I left and drove back and I felt absolutely on the way back uh, to New York. I've blown it. This is like, you know, everything that I'd thought. I mean, I've given up this incredible work that I was doing. Uh, There's no way I could ever go back to South Africa one way or another. But I had this terrible despair. And then when I developed the film and I looked at it, I didn't like anything. And so uh, what ultimately happened was I found one shot that I thought was uh, interesting, and I spent about a week, uh, like, making a print, and then I finally uh, walked across the park to Bob Cato's apartment to give him the picture, and when I got there, I I got cold feet, so I pushed the picture under the door (laughs) and, uh, and left. And uh, came back, and my friends were saying, "So what happened?" And I, I said to them, "Look, you know, he wasn't there, and I left the picture." <laughs> and then I don't hear anything for a couple of uh, days, and they're saying, "Like, call him, call him." And I'm like, "I'm, I'm, uh, I didn't think I could handle the rejection when I call him, and he would say, "What the is this?" You know. And uh, finally, I think after about ten days, or a little bit less than that, I called him. And he comes on the phone and he says, you know, where the fuck have you been? I've been trying to reach you. I don't have your phone number. And, and I'm going, oh, my God. And he says, oh, and by the way, Robbie loves the picture. Uh, I'm not using my material. Uh, we're going to take your photograph. We're going to turn it into a post. I've got a whole new idea. I'm not going to print it on the album cover. We're going to wrap it around the, the album. When people pull the shrink wrap off, uh, they will get a poster. 
and huh. this this had never been done. And the next thing is within um, a few weeks of the album coming out, that poster was everywhere. I mean, at that time, you know, people would hang out in bars and put money in jukeboxes, and there was always, you know, artwork around, and my picture was everywhere. <laughs> And so suddenly I'm the guy, you know, yeah. art directors that I couldn't see are calling me and saying, you know, would do you have any time to come in and see us? <laughs> and my career basically took off and I've discovered now, oh, there's a thing called the music business and the record business and you can actually make a living doing this. And so it was, um, uh, it's a hard um, story to kind of look at when I go, why was I so unaware of what it was, but I had just packed uh, and left a, a country without any kind of knowledge. It was just like you know, up and out and see what happens. But I could never have preconceived that. I would never have thought of going into, quote, unquote, rock and roll. Perhaps a, a bit akin to, perhaps we can talk a little bit about this uh, seven-stage process of the creative process, and perhaps akin to that, there's something about, I mean, your very story that you had to just let go and, and uh, trust and be in the emptiness and that's, that the right things are going to start to show. Um, the, the, um, <clears throat> the seven-stage dynamic of what you're um, uh, talking about now, let me just describe, because one of the things that happened and the paradigm shift for me was um, as I'm working with people and I'm seeing someone in front of my camera and I want them to be spontaneous and alive and not be Authentic. in any way inhibited by the camera, um, I realized that I had to start to work with the artist to get them to feel safe and secure. But it, it didn't uh, emerge in that way in the beginning. What actually emerged was every time I went into a session, I found myself, once I'd initiated, you know, starting, I found myself going into absolute fear. And anxiety. You were in fear? What's that? You were in fear? Uh, absolutely. And, <laughs> right. uh, so, so what was going on, uh, and this went on for about five years, um, you know, suddenly, you know, I'm, things are picking up and I'm working with amazing people and I would listen to uh, Ike and Tina Turner in South Africa and the next thing is I'm standing six feet away from her. <laughs> And I'm terrified, and you know, I, I don't know uh, how to communicate. I'm uh, thinking, well, if you if you have all this fear, it's very clear that you're not really cut out to be an artist. And um, so that was the first stuff that came up. <clears throat> and I tried everything. You know, how can I quote unquote overcome the fear? So, you know, the the best way in those days was, you know, well, let's have three scotches before. <laughs> Uh, I even start, and then by the time they walk in, I'm like, yeah, let's party, and I'm playing loud music, and, you know, a little bit later, I'd have a joint just to take the edge off the alcohol, um, but it didn't, it didn't really handle the fear, except that there was a moment that suddenly I would, there would be a turning point where I would suddenly feel that time and space slow down, and that I was... Um, uh, in the zone, as it were. And I, of course, attributed it to, well, you know, now the alcohol and the crutch has uh, kicked in. But 
what started going on was that, and I'm, by the way, I'm saying to artists, I want you to let go and be spontaneous. And I'm also talking to them because what I found is that artists coming to me at that, at that point, whether they were musicians initially, but it then moved into actors and writers and directors, they were all in the midst of some uh, very uh, profound moment of creativity, some culmination. Yes. And so I started talking to the artists about what was going on in that moment, their, their creative process. Uh, but then there was another epiphany, and um, that epiphany was one day when, and I'll just describe a very clear experience, is that, and it was a wonderful uh, female artist, I, I don't want to say the name here, but I remember walking up to her at one point and saying, you know, I know where I want to go here, but I'm terrified. And the minute I said that, she looked at me and she said, oh, thank you so much for saying that. I'm terrified too. And I was astounded. But what had happened in that moment is I had jumped into the vulnerability um, and intimacy of speaking my truth. And that fear just evaporated. And so what happened out of that was I, I realized, wait a minute, maybe as a creator, you are stepping into the unknown. If you really are going to do something that's innovative and has never been done before, uh, as you stand on the edge of the precipice, as it were, into uncertainty and unknown, perhaps it's appropriate that you feel fear. And then I suddenly had that idea, well, maybe fear is a stepping stone and one of the stages of an archetypal cascade of events because I had now discovered, having done hundreds of sessions at this point, that my sessions went through some very clear phases. So there was the initiation phase and then up would come the anxiety and the fear and the dread. And then I would go through this turning point where I would experience a shift into this place where suddenly it didn't feel like I was doing anything, that things were unfolding on their own. And, the, and, and sometimes it was, I, I could see the exact moment it happened and I could see the artist shift into that space with me. Yes. Mm -hmm. And uh, as I learned to be vulnerable and allow myself to not be ashamed uh, of the fear and not think that it meant weakness or, um, you know, something was uh, wrong with my capacity. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was able to be authentically myself in the moment. And what I mean by that is to just to be honest about what was going on with me. Uh, the whole approach to the, the creative process, rather than trying to get a photograph, uh, I realized that if I could create spontaneous, authentic um, experience in the moment, and what the authenticity was about was if I could be emotionally present and emotionally honest, then what happens is I would get into this relationship with the artist where they would know that they could trust me. And it created an environment of safety. And basically what we did is we created experience that was just wonderful and fun and exploratory and vulnerable and free. And I would see the, this amazing energetic shift in an artist. And all I did was document the experience. So rather than trying to get the shot, the paradigm shift was to forget about the goal 
uh, or aiming at a goal. You, you can have a direction but not a goal, which would then become a kind of control mm-hmm. dynamic. But by creating spontaneous experience in the moment, uh, just the most uh, uh, free, unexpected things would happen. And I'm just there having fun photographing this whole thing. And, and when these emotions come up, uh, it was an utter uh, a multidimensional relief to be able to go and say to someone, I don't know what I'm doing right now, you know, because before control was the absolute fundamental model of how, you know, uh, I was a man and, you know, people were supposed to be in, in medicine. It was, you know, don't act until you have all your ducks in a row. Right. And in this creative process, the last thing you want is your ducks in a row. Yes. So uh, a Being nice in the moment. short answer to a little question. So. Norman, <laughs> yeah, Norman yeah. Uh, yeah. do you believe that, that that moment of fear has something to do with the fact that you were creating in an environment where you were in relationship? I mean, I, I'm thinking of myself as a sculptor that right. I don't. I don't experience fear, maybe some trepidation when I first approach the clay, but not fear so much until I'm actually at the point where I'm exhibiting, then I, then I definitely experience fear when I'm first exposing what I'm doing to other people. But the fear well, is that relationship. Well, it, it is a, uh, the exposing of who we are, whether we are frightened of exposing what we consider our dark shadow weaknesses or, in fact, our light shadow, our power, strength, and talent, and beauty. People are more scared of showing that part. So uh, fear, this is what, what happened. Suddenly I was able to understand, wait a minute, Fear is not something that means I'm not an artist. Fear is actually a fundamental inner resource uh, that humans use to provide direction and uh, protection. Right. So, so fear actually is a guidance system. It basically says go down this road or don't go down this road or you have an issue here, a belief around uh, a consequence that you need to look at. It's always guiding you in some way. So in, in my case, and I'll, I'll come to yours because it's very parallel, in my case, I had, uh, um, uh, as part of the world that I came out of, you've suppressed your emotion. Mm-hmm. And now I'm discovering that the foundation of communication with artists is emotion-based. If I'm not being real emotionally, there's no intimacy and there's no, there's no trust and there's no authenticity. Mm-hmm. So I was thinking, well, gee, I'm going to have to learn about f-stops and cameras and stuff like that. None of that was the issue. The issue was how do I um, uh, stay emotionally honest and in touch with myself and communicate what's going on. But then I realized it's not enough just to say, oh, well, I have fear. You need to look at specifically what kind of fear. Mm-hmm. So sometimes there's fear of humiliation or fear of making a mistake or or fear of um, saying something that people will laugh at you, or fear of not being good enough, or fear of success, or fear of exposure. So in my case, because this, the art form is very interactive in the moment emotionally, I would feel fear of I'm going to be exposing myself as someone who's incompetent. Mm-hmm. Uh, but later on, I realized, wait a minute, fear is absolutely essential. If you're going to jump into the unknown, and, and the whole purpose of creativity is to 
jump to challenge yourself to jump into the unknown. Now, in your case, as an artist, you uh, the the world of sculpture, and I know that part. It's very. It's there's a certain isolation to it. And at the same time, you're having this profound relationship with different parts of yourself. But when you take it out, it's like, oh, my God, that part of me will it's be exposed, that, yeah. that rawness. What if they laugh at me? What if they look at it and say, you've wasted your time? Or, you know, it, yeah. it's, that's what's coming up for you. Yeah. And is, it, is that not the fear itself? It's just mm-hmm. uh, taking down the shackles and being exposed and trusting what's ever there but what, fear can uh, be a motivator too i mean yes it, it's all of those things it's a guidance system a motivator yeah. a protector so when people say oh you've got to overcome your fear absolutely yeah. no you want to embrace it and make it an ally and uh, between uh, you know the, the the two fundamental uh, initial uh, energies as we take embodiment is the love and the separation from the love, which is the fear. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like we have a vehicle that we drive. You need an accelerator and a brake. And it's love that says, I want to connect. I want to explore. I want to go out. But you need a brake because if you run headlong into something without a governor. So I look at fear and love as the sort of an accelerator brake. And they are absolutely fundamentally essential emotions that are part of the profound power of inner resources. And so, you know, not only was I discovering that there is a cascade of events that I was ultimately able to um, codify once I started filming my sessions. I I knew it before I started filming because I could see the stages. But there is a... uh, an order in the chaos. There's a seven-step archetype where you initiate... And then up comes the fear and the challenge. And then this, that's the second stage and the third stage is if I don't deal with the fear in the sense of allowing myself to feel it and find the guidance system and the, the motivation that's in there as well, it, it motivates you to find what's behind the fear. Mm-hmm, exactly. And then the third step is if you don't resolve the fear, then you end up as one of those people that I see every now and again who come to me and say, I've got this incredible project and I'm going to do this and I'm going to write the book and I'm going to do the movie and they come five years later and they're talking about the same thing. And they're caught in that second stage where they haven't gone in and done the work to resolve the fear in its specificity. So I realize that if you want to have this momentum and it's like a flywheel of momentum, you uh, you come up with the dream, the idea, and then up come the challenges, and then that's followed by, I'm either going to be paralyzed by the challenge and never act, or I'm going to go to work and I'm going to process and resolve the fear. And once you have freed yourself from the the uh, the, the uh, all, all motions have a duality; they have a, a negative face and a positive face. So the negative face of fear is that it can paralyze you. The, the positive face is the stuff we're talking about. It's a motivator and a guidance system and a protector. Yes. So when you start to look at it without judgment and go, let me look at both faces and use the fear in the positive sense of the guidance system, but also look at, is it giving me an excuse to hide and not actually challenge myself? 
Yeah. So that's the, the the resolution work, and over the years, there's methods and technologies that we've developed. And then you come to the place, well, now I'm kind of free of it. Am I willing to commit to going forward with this idea or the dream? And I just want to say one last thing, and then we'll, we'll, we'll talk again. But that commitment turning point, if you think of like a half circle, seven steps, the fourth step is the fulcrum in the middle, and there's three steps on either side. That turning point, that initiation, I'm now going to commit to going, like, I'm going to commit to leave a country and become, quote, unquote, an artist, or I'm going to commit to have my exhibition and put my stuff out and risk um, exposure. Uh, the, the, what we were told before was, well, you know, you don't act until you have all the answers. Yes. Uh, the secret to that is that you never know all the answers because if you're stepping into the unknown, by definition, you're looking for the answers you don't have. Yes. So uh, then I went, that's, the, that's where fear comes in because you need that fear, you need that love, you need that break and that accelerator to be able to uh, negotiate that vehicle through this dynamic because life is a dynamic process. It's not a like I used to try and make it a kind of a fixed system with a beginning, middle, and an end, and I thought I'd be safe at the end of it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so anyway, that's the first uh, four steps in the seven-step process. And, and you just took us through those seven steps or the archetypes of the seven steps. Yeah, I took you through the first four steps. Four, yeah. four yes. Yeah. So... Um, Sorry, go ahead. Well, okay, you're speaking to me very, very clearly, uh, well, to all of our listeners. Um, I know you're a spiritual man, and Tash just shared with you what I experienced, uh, well, two, three months ago. Right. Do you have any thoughts? I mean, just do you have any advice for me? I'm an artist. Uh, as yeah, well. the, the, the one thing I'll say on a on sort of a multi-dimensional way of looking at things, because I have been, you know, in the hard sciences as a medical doctor, and I've also had uh, one of the other reasons I left South Africa is that I also developed cancer of the thyroid. Uh, I thought I'd gotten tuberculosis in the hospital, and then discovered that I'd been exposed to radiation. Yeah, and um, I left. Um, with cancer, and I spent two those two years in New York walking around the streets, still carrying the cancer in my body. But what happened was, just to give you an example of what I'm talking about, that uh, you know everything ultimately emerges out of an, an emotional um, source. Uh, cancer, uh, as a lot of people that I know who are working with it, we all pretty much in agreement that it's a, a disease that is specifically in people who have a lot of anger but don't express it. Yeah. And what they do is they take that anger and they stick it into their body somewhere. And one person describes them as, as puffy pots of anger. Mm. And so you can treat your cancer, but if you don't deal with, with the, the anger that's... Under, the emotional driving. The emotional side. It. So, you know, yeah. you go into the wards where they're cancer patients and they're... They're all saying, oh, no, everything's fine. You know, please go and see that patient next door. I'm fine. And I can feel the energy of, Not of, fine. of rage and, yeah. you know, unexpressed stuff stuffed so deeply, you know. Yeah. So the thing with the heart and, you know, it, it does come down to 
that, that love for some people is the core of um, what is most frightening and most desirable. It's like, what is the greatest fear and the greatest desire? So somewhere between the two, people generally take a stand, you know. But if I can really get to the place where I can connect to that Oops. sense of deep love and what happens to some of us, it's such a core piece that our particular area will express literally through the vagus nerve and into the heart and um, the work that I do for myself um, is around the love because I felt a lot of separation and a lack of emotional connection with both the society and my family and that feeling of separation which is the pain uh, which is the, really the work that I'm feeling I'm focused on now. How can I, with all the stuff that I've known, how can I work with diminishing and answering my own pain? Mm-hmm. Um, that separation from, and, and again, there's a duality here with, with love. There's a, uh, anything you're separated from and the other part of it, longing for. So, yes, you need to at this point, it's, it's precipitated enough that it came out for you in a physical dimension. But the work for me, when I left South Africa, and I'm going, well, I'm walking around with cancer, what does that mean? And I realized that I had stuffed my expression of my rage and anger in my throat. And as you know, that's the expression chakra, and that's the thyroid. And I had pushed my emotions down. I was like, hey, I'm cool. You know, I'm, I'm a, mm-hmm. you know, I didn't realize I was actually carrying, besides my one bag, I had a whole bag of rage. <laughs> yes. And so the work that I did, and here's the, here's the magic of it, my, my quote-unquote photography is putting people face-to-face with me six feet away, and I'm forced to be emotionally present. Otherwise, there's no relationship. So what I realized is, wait a minute, yeah, I'm doing all those things, and people say, photographer, we love your work, and filmmaking, which is really what I've done for the last 20 years. I haven't done photography full-time for a while. That's just a, a, a form, but the function of what I'm doing is exploring how can I reach that authenticity of my truest self, and that in, it's essential that emotions, which are is really the only energy that we carry from lifetime. We forget our thoughts, the memory goes of of events, but we carry that emotional stuff. So I would look at something in myself or in you is that this is a a profoundly powerful energy that you want to work with in this particular lifetime. And for me, um, what I discovered that the treatment, quote unquote, for cancer is that uh, it calls for an absolute fundamental life change and to deal with the anger. And, and without thinking of it in that way, something woke me up one day and said, you know what, you have to change your life. I didn't think of it. I thought, oh, I'm going off to um, you know, become this artist and meet all these bare-breasted girls. <laughs> That's the way I'd like to change my life. <laughs> We're back yeah. there, are we? <laughs> <laughs> We're back there. Uh, um, it comes back I so did, easily. Course, by the way. <laughs> uh, but, but the key thing is the deeper, uh, profound drive was that uh, cancer as a call for change. 
And in a certain sense, if you look at this, the messaging of what's going on with you, uh, I always know for myself that my liberation always comes when I do the emotional work and I get to that pain of separation and that longing for and see where I'm either separated from my feelings or separated from the love or separated from intimacy. And so, you know, I always say to people, okay, you know, they, uh, I'm slipping the contraband across the border with my work. They go, oh, you know, you've done this incredible session with Will I Am and this one with uh, Steve Jobs and this one with um, John Houston and this one with Alicia Keys. But I see every session as this beautiful, um, it's like a container of the goodness and the truth and the secrets and the keys to creative expression and how we can access those inner resources that are innate in everyone. And so, uh, you know, I, I said to one of the people that I've been doing some workshops recently, you can do your workshop and you can bring the most sophisticated researchers from MIT and Harvard on uh, relationships and you might get a couple of thousand people, you know, log on. But you bring in uh, Lady Gaga and you'll have uh, five million people log on. So uh, I, I never thought of it that way, but the fact is that's been my work. And I'm now in the process by the end of the year, I'll have a, a channel. It will be my online channel called The Power and the Passion to Create. But it will have hundreds of videos, small movies, ep small episodes of the interactions that I have with artists. And this whole dynamic that I'm talking about is not an academic, philosophical um, description. You literally see it happening. You it's see so it exciting, Norman. Yeah. So uh, I don't know if that answers your question, but the question to me always for myself is, okay, something's happening in my physical body. That's the precipitation of something that initiated in the higher dimensional places of what is really profound you know profoundly meaningful and it ultimately comes down to love and belonging and intimacy and connection and self-acceptance and self-value all of those lovely things and it's a it's a family thing too i mean i was told that it was definitely a hereditary issue and my grandfather died of a heart attack my father did at 67 and yeah. so yeah, it's it's probably a, a common well, thread well, you, that's you, been you in my family. You will inherit a certain amount of biological propensity, yeah. but we are moving into the dimension of human uh, consciousness where we know that this is a hologram and we're projecting it, and yeah. you can actually supersede the biology. So, yes. It's Here we go, Norma. Yes, we're on it now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So, um, you know, that's ultimately... Let me just uh, change rooms because I'm on this... Um... We're going to have to sum it up in two and a half minutes. So if oh, you want to okay. talk really fast... <laughs> okay. Or we could do uh, a part two and a part ten. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really enjoying this. Yes, okay. But I just want to say one thing. We are at the place where the world is splitting into two Yeah. Uh, in a certain way. Those who know that the ability and the power and the truth of how it, it all functions is it's, it's a downstep of consciousness, and the consciousness creates the mud. The scientists said that consciousness evolved out of the mud, and the answer to that is just it's, it's looking down the wrong 
way, looking down the telescope in the wrong way. Mm -hmm. This is a projection, and as we work at that dimension of how am I observing my reality, you can actually heal and shift everything and even change your biology. Yeah, Mm -hmm. One of the things that... uh, I've done it. A workshop I I attended with you, Normie, uh, our teacher was talking about the difference between transcendence and transformation. I mean, we can change and change and change and change you know, evolve forever, but what does a new transcendent change really look like when uh, the fish comes out of the water and begins to walk and the humans begin to take on a new vibration of love that isn't carrying its opposite with it that's not acknowledged? Right. Well, a transformation, if you look at the word, is changing one form to another form. Yes. But we are are multidimensional, and the form is, in fact, uh, form follows function. So the function that comes from the spiritual dimension, we are spiritual beings with a physical form. So the transcendence for me was shifting octaves from, oh, everything that I'm doing, I have to try and control the physical reality. Then I realized, no, wait, create spontaneous experience in the moment and get out of that trying to dominate the form and allow transcendent, uh, unexpected uh, <laughs> events to occur where you both, you, you receive it and you allow it, and you create it. It's just a wonderful state of, of mind and beingness to be in. And that's something that happened uh, as a result of the, the work that I did for myself, where the whole uh, realization of what, the, what the, the, this whole uh, experience of being embodied is, uh, I was convinced that I was a physical be- being and everything else was just like a, a fantasy of people terrified of the truth. And uh, the experience has now switched the other way. And I'm going, wow, I'm just projecting this whole dream and I'm imagining it all the time. So uh, how would I like to write my story? Yes, it's very spacious. Yes. It's and not already filled story. with habit. Yep. So, so you can change the story around everything. And, and one of the most important things for me was find out what is, my, what is my story? What is the framework of observation? And if I don't like the script, change the act. <laughs> Fabulous. Let, let, let's change the third act and make it different and maybe bring in some different players. That is so beautiful. Thank you, Norman. I don't want this to end. I know none of us do. We're on to, you've got us all on the hook there, Norman. We're down to the last minute of our uh, show and... Uh, Love to you, and thank you so much for uh, being the show today and uh, sharing with us your love and light. Well, I want to thank you for the honor of doing this, and I'm feeling bereft because I really... I want to talk to you guys more about you, not just me. So, well, you, uh, do you want to do that next week then? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I would, I would love to continue this and uh, uh, just. Uh, have the fun that this really is. We're uh, talking about a time where you and Susie can come up to the Slocan Valley and we can have a good good get-together here. I love it. I love it. Thanks well, again, Norman. Okay, thank you, everybody. It was a pleasure you. meeting you. And, and I'd love to see your sculpture. Do you have it on- online? Yes, she I does. Do, actually, yeah. Spiritsculpture.ca okay, uh, that could be a way not to have the fear. It could be a buffer between. That's <laughs> true. That's very true. Actually, no, it, it's been, the, the community that I'm in has been very supportive, so it got me through that uh, fear of actually putting it out there. So, 
Well, I, you can enjoy the fear for what it, it can also bring. It can be this amazing guidance. So yeah. uh, th- that happened to me. I just shifted the manual that I had that said it was bad and terrible, and I turned it into a power <laughs> of creativity. It Inspiring. It motivates me to not fall on my face. How's that? Yes, I love it. <laughs> we got to end this. I apologize. Okay. We'll talk to you soon, we hope. Okay, yes. thanks. See you soon. Thank you very much. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.